7, we're going to deviate from the Proverbs for the rest of the month to read some of these scriptures that we attach to uh, the Christmas story and Christmas time. So Isaiah chapter 7, and I want to read verses 1 through 17. Isaiah chapter 7, verses 1 through 17. Verse 1. Now it came to pass in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to make war against it, but could not prevail against it. And it was told to the house of David, saying, Syria's forces are deployed in Ephraim. So his heart and the heart of his people were moved as the trees of the woods are moved with the wind. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out now to meet Ahaz, you, and share Jashuv, your son, at the end of the aqueduct from the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field, and say to him, Take heed and be quiet. Do not fear or be faint-hearted, for these two stubs of smoking firebrands, of these two stubs of smoking firebrands, for the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Ramaliah. Because Syria, Ephraim, and the son of Ramaliah have plotted evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and trouble it. And let us make a gap in the wall for ourselves and set a king over them, the son of Tabel. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be broken so that it will not be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is Ramaliah's son. If you will not believe, surely you shall not be established. Moreover, the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Then he, that's Isaiah, said, Hear now, O house of David, it is a small thing for you to weary men, but will you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a son. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Curds and honey he shall eat, that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that you dread will be forsaken by both her kings. The Lord will bring the king of Assyria upon you and your people and your father's house. Days that have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah. So in this passage, we see that there is this prediction, this prophecy of a virgin conceiving and bearing a son, and that his name will be called Emmanuel. And we know that this is a prophecy of the first coming of Jesus Christ because the book of Matthew tells us it is tells us that this, uh, when Jesus comes, is born as a baby, it is a fulfillment of this particular prophecy. But as we read this, we must also keep in mind that this prophecy is given within a specific historical context. Here's a king 
Ahaz. And Ahaz is about to be put under the pressure of being attacked by Israel, the northern kingdom, and Syria. And the Lord tells him, don't worry. Don't worry about this. It's not going to happen. And he says, if you will not believe, surely you will not be established. In other words, if you believe, I'm going to take care of you. If you trust in me, I will take care of you. But Ahaz, in his response, when the Lord says, ask for a sign, I'll give you anything you want. Ask for a sign. Ahaz says, I don't need a sign. The reason that he did that is because Ahaz was trusting in a political alliance that he had already made. He is not trusting in the Lord. And it goes on to tell us, that Assyria, the nation of Assyria, is going to come upon the people of Judah. And that happens in chapters 36 and 37 of the book of Isaiah with Hezekiah and the Assyrian king Sennacherib. And it's in this setting that we have the promise of the Son of God coming, being born of a virgin. And so this is Isaiah chapter 7, verses 1 through 17. Uh, Now take your Bible and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. And today we're coming to the end of the qualifications for the elders of the church. Is there an amen there? We have taken our time going through these qualifications because they are so important. It's it's so important that the church has properly qualified leaders. There's nothing worse for a church than not having properly qualified leaders. When the leaders go astray, they will take the church astray. And so we have taken time to look at these qualifications, to understand them and see why they are important. And as we have looked at these qualifications, this is what we have learned so far. That these qualifications deal with the elders or would-be elders' relationship to being accused of sin and wrongdoing. It says he is to be blameless. He's not to be uh, accusable. It talks about his relationship to his wife. He's to be the husband of one wife. He is to be a faithful husband. It talks about how he is to think and talks about his temperament. It says that he is to be temperate, having balanced self-control. He is to be sober-minded. That means being sound in mind and thinking. It talks about how he is to live his life. It says good behavior. That is a life lived in an orderly and respectable way. He is to be hospitable. That means caring for others without partiality. We have seen in this list of qualifications that it talked about his ability to communicate God's word. He must be able to teach. It has warned about the things that cannot control an elder. It says not given to wine, not a bully, not violent, not a bully, um, not greedy for money. In other words, he, he, he is not a person who will do anything to get what he wants. The ends do not justify the means type of man. We have also seen that this list of qualifications speaks to his relationship with others in the church, especially other elders. He is to be gentle. The idea of that word is he's able to compromise when compromise is possible. He's not uh, to be quarrelsome. In other words, he's not argumentative or disagreeable. And finally, we learned last time we looked at this list about his relationship to money. It says not covetous. There it means does not love silver. Doesn't love money. He's not controlled by money. And so this morning we're going to consider the last three qualifications. Uh, The elder's relationship to his children, his spiritual life, 
and unbelievers. That's what we're going to look at. His relationship to his children, his spiritual life, and his relationship to unbelievers. And we might just note here that Paul spends more time talking about these three things than he has anything else up to this point. Everything else is a word or two, maybe a short phrase. But with these three qualifications, we have three entire verses, four entire verses given to them. That, that, tells, us, that tells us that Paul believed these things need more explanation than the others. And so as we look at these qualifications, these last three, I want you to remember the phrase that I introduced to us at the very beginning of these qualifications, and that is character is more important than competency. Character is more important than competency. And so let's, let's start by looking at verses 4 and 5. Verses 4 and 5, and here we see the elder's relationship to his children. The elder's relationship to his children. It says, rules his own house well. Look at verse 4. One who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he care, take care of the church of God? Now, you'll note that this type of qualification is also found in Titus chapter 1, verse 6, where it says, having faithful children not accused of dissipation or insubordination. So it's very similar in both lists of qualifications. Now, what does this mean? What does it mean that an elder is to rule his own house? Does that mean that a man who's an elder is the king... His house is the kingdom and his children are the subjects. Is that what it's talking about? Rule them? No, that's not what it's talking about at all. We have already studied this word rule that appears here in verse 4. Uh, we studied it when we looked at the responsibilities of the elder and we saw it in this very letter, if you'll turn over a page or two, to chapter 5, verse 17. Chapter 5, verse 17. And uh, just notice the first phrase there. Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor. The elders who rule. This is the same word that we find here in verse 4. And this word rule has the idea of to stand before, to go before, to lead. So this idea of ruling your own house is not about controlling. It's not about dictating. It's about leading and guiding. So we might say it this way. Uh, one who leads his own house well. And so that's what it means to rule your own house. It means to lead lead as the father of the house. Now, what does it mean to rule your own house well? I mean, we can all say, I rule my house, but do you rule your house well? And, and if we look at it just on the face of it, it means you do a good job of leading your family. You lead your family in a godly way. But this is, this is given further qualification, further description here in the very next phrase of verse 4 says, one who rules his own house well, and look what it says, having his children in submission with all reverence. So to rule well, to lead well, means you have your children in submission. Now this brings up at least two questions. What are children being talked about here? And what is submission? What does it mean that children are in submission? Well, let's talk about who are children. Uh, the children here must be those who are still under the responsibility, authority, and care of their father. Under his roof. Under his care and guidance. 
So this is not speaking about children who have moved out of your home or children who are responsible for themselves. And while in our culture, we don't have a clearly defined, it used to be if you graduated from high school, you're out, right? Uh, when you graduated from high school, you were expected to act like an adult and be responsible for yourself. Now, that's not even the case. That's not even the case. So uh, when is a child considered to be responsible for themselves? Well, you know, in the Jewish world, there is a specific time that children become adults. And, and it's not a gradual thing. It just, this is it. This is now you're responsible. And they gauged adulthood based upon the responsibility one has before the Lord. Does anybody know what they call that time? Bar mitzvah for the boys and bat mitzvah for the girls. So does anybody remember what the boy's age is when they celebrate their bar mitzvah? 13. The girls are 12. The girls are 12. It's a different age. And it's at that time that these children become responsible before God for keeping the law. Bar mitzvah. Bat mitzvah means son of the commandment, daughter of the commandment. It means that they are obligated to keep the law. They're responsible to do it. Today, we have been introduced, and as far as I can tell, we've accepted the idea of adolescence. Uh, the time between childhood and being adult. But I want you to realize adolescence is totally foreign to the world of the Bible. Matter of fact, it's totally foreign to most of human history. There was no such thing as adolescence. You were either a child or you were an adult. And so what I want you to see here is that this is talking about children who are still under the responsibility, authority, and care of their father. Now, you probably want me to put an age on that. I can't do that. <laughs> I can't tell you what ages actually compose of who a child is. But when a child moves out of your house, guess what? They're on their own. They are taking their own responsibility. When they start making decisions for themselves and having to suffer the consequences for those life decisions, that's probably a good time when they are on their own. So these are the children. Now, what does it mean that these children are to be in submission? Well, the word submission simply means to be in line under. That's what it means. Be in line under. And remember, remember, this qualification is not talking so much about the children as it is the elder. What's the elder's responsibility as a parent? So when it talks about having children in submission, it's talking about is the elder, is this man parenting his children in a way so that they follow him? Is he using the knowledge and wisdom available to him to parent them in a godly manner? So this does not mean that elders must be perfect parents. Nor does it mean their children must be perfect children. Does that, do any of us believe that either of those things exist? Perfect parents and perfect children? If you believe either of those things, I can almost guarantee you've never parented or had kids. <laughs> there's no such thing as perfect parents, and there's no such thing as perfect children. So that's not what it's talking about. But what it is talking about is that this man does what he knows is right with regards to parenting his children, to leading them in the way of the Lord. He's doing what he knows to do as a parent. 
And then it tacks on the last three words in verse 4. It says, with all reverence. This word reverence means dignity, but it's not talking about the children being dignified. It's talking about how the man parents his children, how he leads his children. He, he leads them with reverence. He leads them with dignity. And that just simply means he takes his role as being a father seriously. He doesn't excuse the bad behavior of his children by saying, boys will be boys. They're just sowing their wild oats. That's not being a good father, a good parent. And to do that means you're not qualified to be an elder. But he does lead them with dignity, taking his role as father seriously. And so what does it mean to rule your own house well? It means that the elder parents his children in a godly way, according to godly principles. Now, why is this important? Look at verse 5. Why is this important? Here's the explanation. We see the word for us telling us he's given an explanation. For if a man does not know how to rule, lead his own house, how will he take care of the church of God. You see how a man parents, how he fathers his children is an indicator of how he will lead the church. The family life of an elder is proof. It is evidence of his capabilities of leading other people. And by the way, this means that when a man wants to be an elder, guess what can be examined? how he's a father. It tells us we can look to see how has this man been a father. And so this qualification in relation to the elder's family, his, in relation to him being a father to his children, it, 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 is, it is telling us the second part of his family life. Remember the first part dealt with his wife, husband of one wife. Now it's dealing with the children, ruling his own house well, which means his children uh, follow him. And, and this area of life today has its own set of complexities. I mean, what if, what if one of the children of the pastor goes wild? What do you do? Do you give him his 30-day notice? But in this qualification, it's not about the children. It's about the elder. It's about how does the elder handle his children? Has he done everything possible to lead them correctly? Has he responded properly in leading and training them? Has he responded properly to sin in their lives? This is very clear in verse 5 with the analogy that Paul is drawing. If you look at verse 5, you'll see that to rule his own house well is connected to he take care of the church. So rule, care, his own house, the house or church of God. So you see how they go together. If he doesn't lead his own house, how is he going to take care of the people in the church? And so let me deep, go a little bit deeper into this analogy. Are there people in the church who misbehave? Answer is yes, there are. When the people of the church misbehave, do you kick the elders out of the church? No, you don't. You realize, you realize that their misbehavior is their own responsibility, but you also realize that the elders must respond to their misbehavior properly. So likewise, there are children who misbehave. That doesn't mean an elder steps down or is forced to resign because of the bad behavior of his children. The issue is, what is he doing? Is he responding and acting properly in a godly manner? The elder's relationship to his children is to lead them in the way of the Lord, to train them in the things of the Lord. 
This marks out his ability to lead and care for the church. If a man is a godly parent, then he'll be a godly elder. The second in our last three qualifications here is found in verse 6. And this is the elder's relationship to the Christian life. The elder's relationship to the Christian life. He's not to be a novice. Look what it says. Verse 6. Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Now, what's this mean, novice? What's this word novice mean? Well, it's actually a gardening term. It's actually an agricultural term that means newly planted, newly produced, or newly sprouted. And so when we put that into the uh, context of the church, it's talking about a new convert. And so an elder cannot be a new convert, and he cannot be someone who acts like a new convert, acts like someone who was just saved. And so when we say he can't be a new convert, that's the negative way to say it, What are we saying positively? We are saying, not that he has to be a Christian for decades and decades and decades. We are saying he has to be a mature Christian. He has to be spiritually mature. That's the emphasis on the Christian life of an elder. He has to be spiritually mature. And we see there's a warning. There's a warning here. There is a very real danger attached to putting a new believer into the position of leadership and authority. If you do this, the the verse says in verse 6, less being puffed up with pride. That's the danger. You put a new convert as someone who's in leadership and authority in the church, and they can succumb to the sin of pride. This is a warning. Pride has no place in the heart of an elder. I just want you to hold your finger here and turn back to Ezekiel chapter 28. Ezekiel 28. I want you to look at verse 11 and following, because in our passage in 1 Timothy, it says, lest he be being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Notice what it says in Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 11. It says, moreover, the word of the Lord came to me saying, son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God. It says, you were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in the garden, or, or in Eden, the garden of God. So let me tell you right now, this is not talking about the king of Tyre. The king of Tyre is representing Satan. That's what's happening here. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. The sardis, topaz, the diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. You were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. We can just stop right there because this this iniquity that was found in him is in verse 17. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. I'll just, your heart was lifted up. What does that mean? Pride. He was prideful. And so this is a warning about pride. And pride was such a a devastating thing to Satan. Paul is warning Timothy that when it comes to the elders of the church, they cannot have 
pride. And one of the temptations that is uh, before a new believer, if they're elevated before they ought to be, is pride. And so when we look at this qualification of not being a novice, what does it mean? It means that the elder can neither be a new convert, nor can he be one who acts like a new convert. Now, why is it important that the elder not be a new believer? Because in order to lead the church and care for the church properly, you need someone who is a seasoned and mature Christian. Uh, very often, new converts are the most excited, most passionate about their newfound faith. Would you agree with that? When someone first gets saved, they're very often the person who is the most excited and the most passionate about what God has done for them. And while they have that excitement, we must also realize they have very little knowledge of the scriptures and almost no experience living the Christian life. Even if they have grown up in the church, a new believer does not know what it's like to live with the Holy Spirit guiding them because they've never had the Holy Spirit in them before. Their faith is untested, untried, and unexperienced. They have not yet learned to trust in God in the things of life because before they got saved, they never knew God. They did not have a fellowship with God. And so there's a very, a very real danger that a man who may be saved for years, even decades, has actually never progressed past the novice state. Never be, has never become mature in their Christian life. They still don't know their Bible. They're still not living out what the Bible says they ought to live like. And so this means that the elder, it's important because the elder must be spiritually examined. Is he a mature Christian? Does he have the knowledge of the word of God? And is that knowledge accompanied by living life for God? That's the qualification. Now let me broaden that out because even as we see here, that the elder is required to be mature in the faith. Isn't spiritual maturity something that every believer should attain to? Shouldn't we all want to be spiritually mature, spiritually maturing? And even though I think we would all agree that every believer ought to be growing in the Lord, growing in the knowledge of God's word, growing in the relationship with Jesus Christ, sadly... Maturing is the exception and not the rule. And let me be clear, there is no allowance in the Christian life for remaining a novice. There's absolutely no allowance for a Christian to remain a novice. You are not to remain a baby Christian. You are to mature and you are to grow. What, what are some of the characteristics of being a novice? What are some of the characteristics of being a baby Christian? What are some of the characteristics of being immature spiritually? The first is obvious. It's unavoidable. If you have someone who just got saved, guess what? They're a novice. They're a baby Christian. They are going to be spiritually immature. It's unavoidable. Secondly, though, we do have believers who have been a Christian for some time, but they're still immature. They still act like they are a baby Christian. And when it comes to spiritual maturity, there's four kinds of Christians. Okay? When we talk about spiritual maturity, spiritual growth, growing in the Lord, there's four kinds of Christians. Number one, there are Christians who are maturing, and they know they're maturing. Those around them know they're maturing. I, I don't want to use the word they're mature because I don't want to present the idea that you actually have arrived yet. You're maturing. 
They know they're maturing. They can look at their life and they see the growth that the Lord has given them. That's the first kind of person. The second kind of person is the Christian who is maturing, but they're not sure that they are. They're doubting that they are. Um, it's not obvious to them that they're actually growing, but they are growing. When you look at them, you see they're growing. They're growing. They just don't know that in their own heart. That's the second kind of Christian as related to spiritual maturity. The third kind of Christian is the immature Christian. The ones who are immature and they know they're immature. They know they need to grow in the Lord. They know they need to uh, get into their Bibles. They know they're immature. But the fourth kind of Christian is the most dangerous kind of Christian. And it is the Christian who is immature, but they think they're mature. They're immature, but they think they're immature. They're mature. And it's these kinds of people who cannot be put in leadership in the church. Uh, in this group, there are those that we call backsliders. And we, we all know what backsliding is. Uh, we can probably think of some names of people who are what we would consider backsliders. But you know, it's not always obvious who the backsliders are. Do you realize that? It's, it's not always clear who's backslidden, who is immature. There's some people who come to church, go through all the motions, serve in different ways, but spiritually, they're just not growing. They're just going through the ritual. And unfortunately, people who have been in church the longest are those who are in greatest danger of fitting into that last category that are immature, but they think they're mature. And so what are some of the characteristics, what are some of the indicators of a person, of a believer, who ought to be mature, but they're exhibiting immaturity? They are immature as Christians. There are two passages in our New Testament that deal specifically with this. 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 2, in the beginning of chapter 3, so 1 Corinthians chapter 2 into the beginning of chapter 3 and Hebrews chapter 5 and chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 5 and chapter 6. Now we don't have the time to go through a exposition of these. So I just want to sum them up for you. And probably in Sunday school we'll take a closer look at these. But when we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, why don't you just turn there? You'll have it in front of you anyways, that you, so you can look at it. 1 Corinthians, just look at chapter 3. We're not going to get into chapter 2. And look at verse 3 in particular. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 3. What are the characteristics of spiritual immaturity here? It says right here in the verse... For you are carnal. And so Paul is telling the Corinthians, because they are acting immaturely in a spiritual sense, because they are babes in Christ when they should be more mature, he says, you are acting carnal. You're acting like unsaved people. Now look what he says they're doing. For, he's going to explain it. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you. So the characteristics of immaturity of an immature believer is that they are envious of one another. That's the first characteristic. They're envious of one another. The char another characteristic is that there is discord, there is contention, there is strife between you and another believer, and you're not dealing with it. That's another mark of immaturity. You're not dealing with the problems that you have with another believer. The third mark of immaturity is that you are dividing the church. You're, you're in a part of the church and you're not going to let anybody else be in your part of the church. It's this group of people and it's them and no others. Can I say, if you are jealous, if you have discord with another believer, 
If you have divided yourself off from the church, you are a carnal Christian. It's not what I say, it's what Paul says. You're a carnal Christian. You cannot claim to be spiritually mature whatsoever. You are acting like a babe in Christ. You are acting even like an unbeliever. In Hebrews chapter 5 and 6, why don't we turn there real quick. Chapter 5 and 6, book of Hebrews. Now we're going in the other direction. The context picks up in verse 12, chapter 5, verse 12. And it goes down through chapter 6, verse 12. And the writer of Hebrews is warning his audience about what their spiritual immaturity can lead to. Okay, he goes through the first part of this passage and he talks about them, these Hebrews, should be teachers now, but they're not because they've never gotten off milk. They're never able to handle solid food. They haven't matured. They haven't gone past the basics of Christianity. These are the people who have to hear the gospel every Sunday. They haven't gotten past the basics that Jesus died for them that they can't work their way into heaven. These are the basics of Christianity. And the writer of Hebrews says, you've never gotten past this. You ought to be past this. The danger that he warns them of is in verses 4 through 8 of chapter 6. The danger is, if you persist in your spiritual immaturity and you do not progress... Beyond the basics of Christianity, you are in danger of changing your mind about what you think about Jesus Christ. That's the danger. And he, he describes what I believe is the Christian life in these verses. When he talks about once enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, become partakers of the Holy Spirit, and so on and so forth. He's describing the Christian life. And he's saying, if you do this, you're staying in your spiritual immaturity, even though you've experienced all these things, you can, you can change what you think about Jesus. Every day, it seems now, we hear deconversion stories. Anybody heard of deconversion stories? It's everywhere in Christian news. Famous Christians who now claim to be atheists and, or agnostics. What has happened? They have changed their mind about what they think about Jesus Christ. And here is the importance of this warning. That if you persist, if you persist in your spiritual immaturity, there will be a time when God will not permit you to go on to spiritual maturity. You will be stuck as an immature Christian. Hopefully, as you look at these characteristics of immature Christians, you'll look at them and say, thank the Lord, I'm not envious. Thank the Lord, I don't have strife with another believer. Thank the Lord, I'm not part of a division in the church. Thank the Lord, I want to move on to spiritual maturity. But if you look at this and you say, you know what, I am envious another believer. I do have strife with another believer. I am causing division in the church. I really don't have a desire to grow in my relationship with God. If you look at these characteristics and you say, this applies to me, today you need to ask God to renew your love for him, to renew your love for his word and his people. And today you need to choose to go on to maturity. That means being thankful to the Lord for what you have. Don't be envious about other things. It means dealing with strife and conflict that you have with another believer. It means not being part of a division. It means being unified as a church. And it means desiring to grow in the Lord. If that's you today, you need to pray to God and ask him to help you. Well, we just have like a minute to go through the last one.
Okay, the elders' relationship to unbelievers. The elders' relationship to unbelievers. Let me just sum it up. I'm going to sum it up this way. The man who would be an elder must receive a good testimony from the unbelievers in his life. Unbelieving neighbors, unbelieving co-workers, unbelieving employees, unbelieving people on the Little League Club or whatever it is. He must receive a good testimony from these people. And that means when a man wants to be an elder, we can examine his life outside of the church. It means he cannot have a compartmentalized life. You know what I mean by that? Compartmentalized life. Well, I got my Christian life over here and I got everything else in life over here. And you know we're all capable of doing that, right? We all can do it. Sunday morning, it happens more often than any other time. You realize you get in an argument with your spouse on the way to church. You get in an argument with your kids on the way to church. But as soon as you turn onto the church property, what happens? A miracle. <laughs> church face is on, right? That's compartmentalizing our lives. An elder cannot have a compartmentalized life. His life must be a comprehensive whole, and we get to look at it to see if people will testify to his good Christian character. Well, we've learned a lot more about the elders here this morning, but how's your parenting go going? If you're parenting, you have kids at home, how's your parenting going? If I'm going to guess, you're probably, if you're like us, you're probably thinking, that could have been better. <laughs> I could have done that better, right? But the fact that you know you could do better, the fact that you're concerned about raising your children in the Lord's good mark. I think that's a mark of a good, good parent. So let me encourage you in that if you got kids at home. If you don't have kids at home, you can still parent. You know that, right? Your grown children and your grandchildren. How do you parent? How do you be a good parent? to grown children and your grandchildren, even great-grandchildren. Direct their hearts and mind to the Lord. When you ask them, Betty Sue, what do you want to do when you grow up? When you ask them that, and they start to tell you, do you say to them, have you ever considered asking God what he wants you to do? What would the Lord have you do? What's the Lord want for you? When your grown children are making a decision and they come to you for advice, do you tell them the first thing we need to do is pray and ask God for wisdom? That's being a good and godly parent. So we've learned a lot about being parents. We've learned something else about the spiritual life and the marks of spiritual maturity. And just let me in closing give you two measures, two measures of how you can examine your spiritual maturity. Do you have a desire for the knowledge of God? That's number one. Do you have a desire for the knowledge of God and are you living what you know? Do you have the desire to know God more? And that involves knowing his word. And number two, are you living what you know? Are you living what you know? The greatest hindrance to spiritual growth, the greatest hindrance to any man being an elder is sin. The greatest hindrance. When you're in sin and you know you're in sin, you will not grow spiritually. You will not progress. Doesn't matter how much you know, you will not grow. Sin is the greatest hindrance. And so we need to make sure, just like the elder is told to be in our passage, that you're blameless, that you take care of your sin before God and before others you have affected. And so why don't you stand with me? I'm going to repeat a phrase, the phrase I want us to know. The phrase character is more important than competency. 
Say that with me. Character is more important than competency. We must not only demand that of the elders of the church, but we also must demand it of ourselves. Our character is more important than our competency in anything. The Lord can use those of good character. Just because you can teach, just because you can do this or that, and you can do it perfectly, doesn't mean that the Lord can use you if you've got bad character. Your character is what matters before the Lord. Let's pray and we'll be dismissed. Father, we give you thanks for this time that we've had together. Thank, we're thankful for these qualifications for elders. They tell us what to expect from our church leaders and the standard to which you hold them to. But, Father, we also are challenged by the fact that every single one of these 16 qualifications that are listed here applies to each and every believer. And so, Father, today, help us to be godly parents. Help us to lead our homes well, including even our extended family. Help us to always direct their hearts and minds to you, no matter what the situation is. Father, help us not to be like novices in Christ. For those who have been saved for a while, help us to be mature and maturing in the Lord. And Father... We pray that we would have consistent Christian lives, even among those who are unsaved, even among those who we know we don't have to act like a Christian in front of them, but we should. Help us to be Christ, uh, consistent in our Christian lives so that if an unbeliever we know is asked, they can testify to our Christian character. Father, we need your help in this. We're so thankful we have the Holy Spirit who will bring these things to mind as we're confronted by them. Help us to yield ourselves. Help us to submit ourselves to the Spirit's guiding. We pray these things in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.